Welcome to time at the bar. <laughs> How's I, it going, Maz? You all right? I'm all right. How are you, Floz? Yeah, very good. Very yeah, good. Yeah, you're feeling ready for part two of the Trappist Brewing... It's a trap Ext- It's a Trappist <laughs> extravaganza. Yeah, no, absolutely. I am very excited about this one. Last week, we did a little bit of... Uh, waffling. His- a bit of waffling. <laughs> there was history involved. Yeah. There were many drinks consumed. Yeah. We have now recovered and are yeah. prepared to record another one for your audio delight not dereliction (laughs) dereliction delection delection I don't know. Which direction are we going in here, Maz? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Um, <laughs> so last week, what did we drink? We had the... The West Mile Triple, Rochford 8, and finally, what else did we have, Maz? Orval. Ah, Orval. Orval. Um, and this week, we're going a bit more modern. We're going for some of the ones that were released... <laughs> I mean, we say modern. Certainly within the last 150 years. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> which makes them young. Very, well, I mean, I think Orval is considerably younger than La Trap that we'll be doing today. But, yes. um, yeah, uh, this beer itself is, is more of an innovative term, yes. especially based on its name. So we'll get into that in a little mm-hmm. while. <laughs> uh, so what have we got today? Right, well, so the name that I've just said that we might talk about later is La Trap Quadruple. So that's one of the beers we'll be doing from the Koningshoven Brewery of La Trap in the Netherlands. We'll also be doing Tint Meadow from Mount St. Bernard Abbey in Leicestershire. In the UK. UK. <laughs> and finally, Spencer Abbey. Ah, yes, in Massachusetts. In US U- A. The US of A. US of A. Excellent. So, so yeah. um, before we go too far and Which get too I carried think we've away. we've already done. Um, one step forward, we two steps back. We have a few... Extra bits of information that we got so excited about last week, but we failed to... Yeah, uh, I mean, we probably missed a hell of a lot of information, but we're going to just chip away at a few bits and bobs throughout this. Also, if we're being very honest, we have slightly less information for some of these these are breweries, and so yes. we'll um, we'll figure something else out. So, just to backtrack, we're going to talk a little bit about overall Trappist life and... Um, yeah. It, how beer fits into that. Yeah. Because I think that we did a little bit of it and then got too excited and skipped over it. And I think, just to be, you know, perfectly frank about it, obviously having done an episode on West Vleter and, uh, you know, drinking the 12s and quite a bit of overview of them, we haven't talked about them at all since Sixters. Mm-hmm. But we put a lot of information in there. And the same again with our little blog post uh, on uh, Brewery Achel. Um, so I think we actually put a lot of stuff in there, and in our heads, it's like we've we've talked about it. We've already talked about this. Why do we have to go over this information again? <laughs> so oh, advice yeah. <laughs> would be search out that episode on on St Sixtus on on, on the West Fleetron, um, and also have a look at our blog post on Achel because it will give you a good overview. Yes, yeah, so we have a few basic um, outlines of things that we we should have really said in the first episode. Um, so first off, the monks. Uh, we did mention in the last episode that the monks fit the brewing into their daily lives. Yeah. But um, I don't think we really clarified the fact that the monks meet every couple of hours b- and between mm. in within their day to That's pray. That's very true. We did not tell anybody that. No. So <laughs> I think that just to just to highlight the fact that obviously beer takes a very much a backseat, or any of their daily work takes a backseat in the prayer and work 
Aura elebora. Yes, of their day. So prayer um, still comes beyond everything, doesn't it? Above absolutely. everything, sorry. Um, so just to clarify, I think we used the term lay brewer in the previous episode without actually quantifying yeah. what lay brewer means. Um, so you might have heard the term lay person or mm -hmm. lay people. Um, they are generally, basically, anybody who isn't a, uh, a monk, a priest, a nun, someone who is within the um, vocational side of religion. Um, so to it, help the breweries operate while the monks are off doing their prayers because, you know, they have to meet, was it seven times a day? Yes, I think each uh, abbey will probably have its, its slight, slightly different own schedule. But yes, I believe it's around about, it's about seven times a day, isn't it? Yes. So in order to make sure that the monks can meet all of their uh, times of day that they need to go and pray, mm -hmm. um, they bring in people from the local community or experts, other brewers um, who can oversee the production and make sure that nothing goes wrong. Yeah, no, um, I don't know, that makes sense, doesn't it? This might make you question, how can a beer brewed in Trappist Monastery still be classed as Trappist if there are lay people helping to brew it? Well, as the guidelines for the authentic Trappist product state, the production of these uh, either cheeses or... Uh, wines or beers, beers, wines, beers whatever yeah. um as long as there is a monk overseeing the process at every step of the way then it can still class as a trappist product and that's also within the confines of the abbey um also to clarify i think that people often get confused that um people of a religious order would use alcohol or have alcohol as part of their daily life mm. and i think that um it's worth highlighting that um Beer has always worked as a kind of meal supplement uh, because the monks have always lived with quite a meagre lifestyle and yeah. because they're working the land and they're only living off what they can make themselves, it means, that, and they're not having any support from the church, that beer has offered the liquid bread, the food mm. supplement. It manages to sort of get them through the day between meals and what might be quite basic, simple food. Another interesting point to make would be that you could probably see a pattern about where uh, beer is being brewed in Trappist monasteries. It tends to be in the sort of northern part of Europe, yep. uh, obviously not including all the new Trappist brews that are popping up all over the world. Yeah, sure, um, sure. Traditionally, it's seen in the northern part of Europe, and that's partly due to the fact that um, the southern part of Europe, you know, in Italy and in Spain, there would have been a lot of wine being made. Uh, but wine grapes can't really grow in the north of Europe. It's not the right uh, terroir, if yeah, we'd like yeah. to say. To get, to get the right amount for them to be able to live off and make money out of, yeah. A absolutely, yeah. They couldn't make it in any significant quantity. Um, so that's why beer was adopted as a better option because the northern parts of Europe are far more efficient at growing uh, barley and, and yeah. you know, and hops as well. I mean, famously, Germany um, was the source of, uh, you know, noble hops. Yeah, no, absolutely, yeah. And as well as beer being um, a provision for the monks and the local community, 
it's also worth pointing out that it was very beneficial to the travellers and pilgrims that used to visit the monasteries because I think that um, people might not realise you can still visit a lot of monasteries as we'll get into a little bit later Mount St Bernard still has an active uh, guest house where people yep. can come and stay and um, being able to offer weary travellers Again, rather substantial something to drink that will, mm. uh, you know, fill them up after a long journey. You know, that's a, a nice thing for them to be able to offer as well. And it has sort of added to the experience of um, the pilgrims. Yeah, I mean, the monks were the ultimate, so like initial hospitalers, you know, hoteliers, if you like. They exactly. put people up all the time. And you saw, obviously, sometimes it was closer to the, to the actual abbey itself, but often it was... Uh, a little house adjoining the, the 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 it's called like the house at the gates I think yeah and you'd end up with a little little uh, pub basically <laughs> then the inn that you could stay in and yeah because obviously they were <clears throat> sharing all of their knowledge but also travellers people going on their way their logical stop off points weren't they um, I also realised last week we didn't clarify that um, Montecat which uh, we did mention uh, we we kind of skimmed over it without pointing out why it doesn't count as a Trappist brewery. Yeah, um, I mean, I think I, I think I tried to say, but I sort of got a bit lost in my point. It's not, you know, that's very unlike me to just completely waffle on about things, isn't it, Matt? Yeah. Um, so uh, to clarify that point, um, Montecat do have a beer, but it is not brewed on site. It is not brewed by the monks. It is brewed for them to sell. Um, they also make a cheese, and their cheese is classed as an authentic Trappist product, but it is, but the beer is not. Yeah, so not the cheese made is made within the abbey walls. Yeah. So that is, therefore, again, that's one of those pointers in chief, made within the abbey walls by the monks or under the guidance of the monks, therefore achieves, it can achieve Trappist status that way. Yes. And finally, just to round it all off, it's it's really important to remember simplicity is the cornerstone of the Cistercian way of life and I have this uh, really lovely quote that I pulled from the Mount St Bernard website which I thought I would just read because I thought it was really nice go for it Cistercians esteem the value of simplicity simplicity doesn't stand for a thing done simply or cheaply but rather represents a distillation of complexity it is about processing and ordering a rich varied reality in such a way that the result seems self-evident this is how it has to be we see this quality at work in the way the early Cistercians built their churches composed their music wrote their sermons cultivated their land we hope you'll recognize it too in the way we brew our beer says it all doesn't it yes absolutely so i think that's it as far as my highlighting some of the points that we uh lost along our journey last yeah. week um but i believe you have some extra history for us to oh, go I mean, we'll, over we'll have all sorts of history that's the kind of podcast we are just a just a wee timeline at because <laughs> you, you know how much time. i love them so i'm going to fly through this at record pace so 516 rule of saint benedict of nursia nursia being in italy uh, is written in Benedict Fathers, uh, which we talked about this in the Lager episode, uh, but St. Benedict Fathers Modern Western Monasticism, ruling requires autonomy and self-dependence, self-sufficiency within the monasteries. We've talked about that endlessly. That's the end of that point. On to the next one. 750, Charlemagne promotes Benedictine and monastic way of life. Now, that is significant because Charlemagne was 
basically the ruler of the area that is now modern Belgium. And Charlemagne obviously stated this Benedictine way of life and the monastic way of life was really important. And so this is the early seeds of that being sown. So on to those legendary Cistercians that we've been talking about so much. Uh, the Order of Cistercians was founded and established as a stricter set of rules than the Benedictines in 1098. So early days, early days. Uh, 1132, Cistercian monks re-establish a monastery at the site of Orval, previously abandoned by the Benedictines. 1464, Cistercian monks take over an abbey at Rochefort, previously a nunnery. 1656, an even stricter order of Cistercians is developed at the Abbey of La Trappe, later be known as Trappists. On to 1790. 1790, French revolutionary government quashes all monastic sites and seizes their land and confiscates their property. Uh, 1802, fleeing monks from France establish a monastery at West Mala. Fleeing monks are thinking of fleeing to America and Canada. So they stop off on the way, as we talked about, in the West Mala little section. Yes, and I think some of that will come up a little later on. Oh, it may well do. It may well do indeed. <laughs> okay, uh, th eight, early 1800s, you had the Napoleonic Wars. 1830, Belgium was declared uh, independent from the Netherlands, and I think it finally achieved its true independence uh, as stated worldwide in the late 1830s. Um, around about the time that the monks began brewing at Vesmala again, this time, then, it's just a race to the end as to who would, you know, who would get going, which abbey would be established and who would get brewing. So I will I will skip over that because we've talked about it a lot as it is. 1919, Belgian government introduces the Van der Velde law, which prohibits the sale and service of spirits and was enacted in direct response to the country's excessive liquor consumption. Why is that important? Because it actually directly led to stronger brews beginning to be made in Belgium. It's a direct response. So you couldn't get the liquor, so it therefore created demand for other strong alcoholic drinks. And beer stepped up to solve that problem. Ah, so this is why Belgian beer is so famously strong. Absolutely. Fortified in its flavour and fortified in its strength. Uh, but that's only since 1919, really. And I'm not saying they weren't making strong beers before that. But that was one of the major turning points in my mind as to why it ended up creeping up the ABV. So 1922, West Mala began using candy sugar. Now that's significant because I talk, I talk endlessly about the gastronomic qualities of Belgian beer. And candy sugar during fermentation, is it leaves a leaner body. It doesn't leave all the same things that maltose and all the other complex starches and sugars in malted barley drinks will give you. So what you get with the candy sugar is also you get these different degrees of colour. So a lot of things, like, you know, the Vesmala double has candy sugar. It's not like they've put roasted malts in there or chocolate malts or this, that and the other. So it keeps the body streamlined. And when you think about a big seven and a half, eight and a half, right up to the 11, 11 and a bit percent beers, why have they got that refined body and that palatability and that almost easy drinkability? It's partially because of this candy sugar and... Uh, and so that's a major one. And just to highlight that, candy sugar is normally uh, a syrup. It's not these rocks that people can buy, these candy rocks that you can uh, buy if you're a home brewer. Another very significant day is 1962. A trade court in the Flemish town of Ghent 
rules that only Trappist monasteries can use the appellation Trappistan beer. This obviously later leads on to the Trappist certified logo that we've talked about before. And finally, in the 1990s, the authentic Trappist product logo was uh, designated as the sign that it was a true Trappist beer, and that was rolled out across the board. So now, having got all that out of the way, and you've almost died of thirst... I'm so thirsty. So parched. You don't even understand, darling. What I'm going to quench that murderous thirst with is a lovely 10% beer. Yay! Yay! We're starting hardcore. And we're going, we're going straight in with Go the... hard or go home. <laughs> we're going straight in with the quad from La Trappe. La Trappe quad then. A 10% Belgian barley wine. Obviously they talk about quadruples. Um, quadruples could be a big, big triple. Could be a steroidal double. Um, <laughs> a steroidal double. <laughs> yeah. Uh, double but on steroids! I mean, to a degree, they are just Belgian barley wines. They come in all sorts of different shapes and sizes, all different colours. But now, I couldn't find the absolute guaranteed information that confirmed this point, but I've always understood the Trap Quadruple to be the first of the Belgian Trappist beers to be called a quadruple. Okay, that's interesting. Because I don't yes. think prior to that, you know, the you know, Rochefus and the rest of the range, you know, the St Sixtus and stuff, they never said... Our biggest beer is a quadruple. I see. Because they were going on number systems and things, yeah. weren't they? Yeah. Absolutely. And as we say, whereas we're so reductive because of, you know, style guidelines and understanding of what style is that we have to go, oh, that fits into there. And that Belgian beer doesn't really fit like that. And in fact, if you ask most Belgian brewers and you start talking to people in Belgium, they will not really be able to say this is this and this is that. It's There's no nailed on definition for all of these beer styles. So... Let's have a little chat about La Trappe Quadruple then. Lovely. So uh, initially, aroma was very peppery. You've got a lot of that ester character from mm-hmm. the yeast. But I'm also getting like a really strong apricot, but like dried apricot. Yeah, that's and... that's tr- yeah, that's really nice, isn't it? And I'm still getting that restrained banana ester, as you say, that spicy phenolic um, quality to it. But that apricot's lovely, isn't it? It sort of really freshens the whole thing up. It's not too heavy on the banana either, is it? No, the banana's very light. It's just maybe just the peel or the pith or something yeah. like that. You know, the... It's maybe a slightly green banana peel, isn't it? Mm. Now, 10%, you get a little bit of the warmth in there. Mm. But the body is, is very restrained, isn't it? It is, yeah. But a little bit of, like, caramel. But it's really dry. Yeah. It's a dry, it's a dry beer, isn't it? But obviously, it has got that boozy sweetness, and then there's a little sort of um, red currant, sort of ever so sharp, slightly, slightly sharp red currant note in there. Yeah, it's almost like quince or something like that. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's like a preserve. Membrio. Mmm, like, membrio. <laughs> oh, there you go. So it's a very lo- lovely sort of, um, I guess you'd call it what copper? Well, it's a like touch light you, copper. Yeah, it's more like a, a iron rusted. Iron, <laughs> copper, something yeah. like that. Um, yeah, it's a so very to, nice orange yeah. copper sort of colour, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Oh. Yeah. And then the finish is so clean, mm. it just disappears. And then you're like, wait, what? Yeah. Where did it go? It just leaves, <laughs> it's like it's evaporated. Just, just leaves a little sort of savoury note on the end of the on the end of the tongue, and it really just as you say, just. Dis- dissipates pretty quickly 
but leaves it sort of. Re- it's not like it's gone and it's gone in a puff of smoke. Mm. It's gone, sort of just just dries out, makes you desire a lot more of it. Mm. A lethal, a lethal, delicious beer. Absolutely, and you can really see how that would sustain you. <laughs> <laughs> I can see it it's feels, sustaining you already. It feels rich. You look well nourished. Oh, you well, look it's well nourished, isn't it? Is that just the flush of my cheek? <laughs> So, um, we're going to go through a little bit about La Trappe Abbey, so more listage, more historage, and more datage. So, established in 1881, they've been brewing since 1884. So, the prior of the abbey at the time, Nevadus Schweikart, was the son of a Munich brewer, and sent brother Isidorus Labeur to Munich to learn the art of lager brewing, effectively. So, he went to learn bottom fermentation. Well, that's interesting, because... Were any of the other breweries, any of the other Trappist breweries, doing anything with bottom fermenting? Well, I assume at the time, because obviously we're still talking about our modern understanding of how many there are now, Mm -hmm. but at the time there would have been others, and also there wasn't a strict, like, you're a Trappist and you're not. Yes. Kind of you kicked out the club sort of state of affairs. There was established monastic communities throughout Germany, and you have to assume that a lot of them would have been making lager. Okay, of course, so that makes sense. But yeah. we just don't associate any of the tra- Belgian Trappist beers with being bottom fermented, do we? No, They're and all... I do think it was La Trappe that set out to initially make lagered beers. Which makes sense, considering the prior was the son of a brewer. He'd be yeah, from Munich. From Munich. He'd, yeah. He'll be saying, written German in the stars. beer, we've got to get some of that in our abbey. Mm, this is delicious, isn't it? He probably missed home too much. Yeah, well, you know, who can blame him, eh? When you get a nice stein of lovely... Uh, Helles, Munich mm. Helles, or uh, at the time I guess it would have been uh, sort of Dunkel. And, uh... Anyway, with the aid of a steam-driven ice machine at Koningshoven, so I have to say now, Koningshoven is where they were settled at the time, they attempted to replicate the success of the Pilsner-style beer in the Netherlands. So in 1884, the steam brewery of the Trappist Fathers, which was their name, uh, brewed twice and named the beer de Schapskoy, uh, which they derived from the fact that it was... The land it was set into was an old, sort of sh- their old sheep farming community, and the name Schapskoy means the sheepfold, and that is what these you know, the, monk, the early monks there were doing as well. Yeah, it's also uh, referential to their uh, their religious way of life as well, isn't Absolutely, it? They are yeah. part of the. Do you know what? I hadn't actually flock. thought about it that at the time. <laughs> yeah. 1888, they began bottling and added a steam-powered generator to the brewery. So this is all pretty modern stuff for the time. They were getting steamy, these monks. Compared to the other Trappist breweries that we were talking about in the previous episode, this one really sounds like it was kind of -of state-of-the-art. Well, this is it, and another reason why I chose part one being, so that's the old school, even though Orval, effectively, Mm. as they are, are much younger and they're probably a bit more of an innovative style of beer. But you feel like, here's your three Belgian ones in the old guard. This is the turn into the monastic brewing that we think of now as well, where it's changed up a little bit. So, 1906. Drama! (laughs) Drama! (laughs) Oh, my God. Drama. I'm not ready. I'm pleased you wrote the notes. They make it a lot more exciting (laughs) than when I'm talking away. The Pope finds out that the Abbey was in an extensive debt. So that is not good, considering what we know... About the, the way they're supposed to be living yeah, their lives. Exactly. So he removed the abbot for Bruchen, and the monks were also removed, and that was basically they were out out of the monastery until a new abbot was appointed. And so this eventually happened in 1909, 
and they were allowed to return and the brewery's output slowly increased again. So I assume it just completely cut off, like if it completely abandoned Abbey, essentially. For yeah, a... and actually, again, until we get to the these latter two delicious ales, um, what we've talked about all the way through is this question of continuity and you know people being driven out all the time. And actually, in the first three beers in the first episode, they're all driven out. French Revolution, you know, the, the Dutch wars. ruler, wars, this, that and the other. In in here, we're more looking at the fact that somebody did something they shouldn't have done. Yes, they've been a bit naughty, haven't and they? Yes, indeed With they the have. the money. All that so, yeah. money. Okay, so moving on. Occupation during World War Two had a surprising effect in that production and consumption increased. Now, the only other place we saw that, and we mentioned that very briefly in the St. Sixtus West Fleetron sort of episode, was that they were the only ones that really sort of saw a boost in production and consumption because they were on like a little island that was protected behind the front line. Essentially, yeah. So they were in this little safe spot where people were like, we still want to drink beer, you know? They'd avoided being invaded. Yeah, Yeah. or because of their situation next to the Esau River. But these guys, yeah, they were in this situation where, hey, look, (laughs) we can make more and people are drinking more. We can carry on making you beer. (laughs) So unfortunately, after the war, the brewery was in disrepair, though, and struggled with scarcity of ingredients. Which, uh, yeah, really put the kibosh on things, didn't yeah. it? So they were in desperate need of investment and funding. So their solution, to a degree, was in the 1950s, they began brewing for the supermarket chain De Spa. There were also 135 tied houses selling their beer at that time as well. So again, something we touched on very briefly in the previous episode, this is something that the monks had as a solution, you know, as a little weapon in their armoury, was to have their own tied houses. So this was an immense pressure, though, on the on the monks. And at the time, there was 15 monks and 150 labourers. Mm. So it was really quite a dwindling community yeah, as far yeah. as the actual monks is concerned. Yeah, a one to ten ratio as well. Mm. You know, that's it's a real that's a real pressure on them, isn't it? So to tackle this problem, to alleviate this pressure that they had, in 1969, they struck a deal with Artois who we all know the name because it's synonymous with Stella Artois, a famous Belgian beer that you can get the world over. Um, to And at the time, Artois agreed to contract brew for them. So unfortunately, this did not actually help their brand, though. And 10 years later, in 1979, they terminated the contract. It actually had the effect of undermining their brand quality. Mm. Um, and I don't know whether that was because of poor quality that was being put out there or whether it was because it was an associated thing. But, I mean, at the time, you know, Artois had a relatively decent reputation, if not ever so slightly overblown. Yeah, and I suppose it's similar in a sense to knowing that breweries like Beavertown have sold shares uh, to Heineken. and uh, So even if there is no change in quality, and even if people can come to terms with this idea of ownership, and the little man and all the rest mm. of it, there is also that question mark in people's heads. When is it going to change? Yeah. When are they going to move it to a different facility? When are they going to start trying to cut corners and financial, you know, make financial gains by mm. stripping in- ingredients and this, that and the other? So, yeah, you can understand it. So during the 1970s, the Abbey had an influx of new young monks. And by the 1980s, therefore, it was brewing significant quantities for the monks and the local community. So they were also one of the monastic breweries that really pushed this idea of marketability. 
and they sort of latched on to the fact that obviously to be able to sell to be able to do what they needed to do they needed to be able to shift a, high, a larger volume and um, one thing they could do with that is to create a brand that was a bit more translatable to people than you know the Coningshoven and you know the steam steam brewers the fathers etc etc which if you wanted to sell into markets say like the USA it would make a lot more sense to make it a punchier snappier name that people could understand and actually say mm. And this is where the name La Trappe comes in, because however much you try to pronounce it differently, most people are going to say La Trappe, whilst, you know, give people the name Koningshoven or something like that, and you're going to struggle with it. It's not snappy. So they, they saw this, and they basically took the name of the monastery in Normandy, which we talked about, which gave the, gave the name to the Trappist, La Trappe Abbey, and they applied this as their new brand. So from then on, they, they, they are La Trappe. So into the 1990s, they hired a layman to, to manage the brewery for the first time. So that was, you know, unlike a lot of the others, in 1990, they've gone, right, a layman is sorting this out now because, again, we, we, need, to, we need to pray and prioritise. <laughs> we need to focus on our prayer for a while. <laughs> so they turned their attention, as I just mentioned before, to the US market. So they turned their attention, as I just mentioned before, to the US market and became the first brewery to market table beer. So in 1997, they received investment from the Swinkels family, who people wouldn't know, but are the owners of Bavaria. And when I say Bavaria, I don't mean the state in Germany. Uh, I mean Bavaria Brewery in Netherlands. So this is one of the biggest breweries in the Netherlands, and it was at the time. Um, so the Swinkels took ownership of the brewery, while the abbey buildings were retained by the monks. So this changed their status for the authentic Trappist production. Of course, because now they have a layman doing most of the work. Absolutely. And it was the ownership of the brewery as well. Oh, yeah. So that was also to the Bavaria Swinkels family. Uh, of course. So they had to work really, really hard to reacquire their, you know, their authentic Trappist product certification. So in 2005, they finally re-established their status as an authentic Trappist producer. So finally, as well as having founded abbeys in countries such as Indonesia and Kenya, they champ. <clears throat> That's my elbow. So finally, as well as having founded abbeys in countries such as Indonesia and Kenya, they champion social outreach programs in which they employ psychiatric patients and people with learning difficulties within the brewery. They are also working on their environmental impact by using spent grain to make bread, which they sell from the abbey shop. So all in all, their sort of approach overall is returned to that sort of... Being part of the community and being uh, yeah. very much in touch with the people that... And um, sustainability you know, and re reuse. And sustainability, and... of course, because that should be a real, uh, you know, key focus of, of brewing as it is. Absolutely. But particularly if uh, your religious discipline, let's say, yes. um, is all about, you know, being guardians of the earth and you know it's actually you know it's our duty as humans to take care of the earth that god gave us well, we guard, and, guardians yeah. of the earth as far as you know, that's what the concern is isn't it yeah exactly so they should and i think that's great because i th that was the first brewery that i've heard of out of these trappist ones that seems to be focusing on the the environmental side of, of yeah and the impact although i would add to that that most of them are now and also mm. to have achieved the the size that a lot of them are at, they have to think about those things because mm. you're wastewater, et cetera, et cetera. And a lot of them historically have had limited supply of those things. It's when we talked about Rochford, they have their 
well that has been threatened all the time and their direct water source. So they really are protecting as much as possible. So as, mu as much as they're going to take the water, they're going to use only as much as they possibly need to. And they're, you know, I think generally the monks are incredibly conscious of their effect on the environment. So, you know, ecologically sound, but also, as we say, their care in the community, their involvement in the community, they're employing people who are at disadvantage, which I think is obviously a wonderful thing to, to talk about, but also it fits very much into their ethos. Excellent. So, so, so. Excellent. Well, thank you for that history of La Trappe. Florian. That is an absolute pleasure. Yes. What I am is very excited to be trying something that I have very little recollection of. <laughs> we are moving on to the Spencer Trappist Ale from Spencer, woo, Massachusetts. It's, yeah, so uh, it's sorry, St. Joseph Abbey, isn't it? St. Joseph's uh, in Spencer. In Spencer, Massachusetts. Yes. Um, now, you tell me that I've tried this before. Yes. But I'm not sure I believe you. <laughs> yes, well, that's fine, because let, let's try it all anew. Yes, no, I think I, I'm excited to come at this with fresh eyes, because I must have had quite a few the last time we tried this, Well, I, I think, really don't remember. In all honesty, you were in the editing suite, so it's probably... Oh, so I probably had yeah. had a few. Um, <laughs> now, the other thing that we have to bear in mind when we talk about this beer is that it's it's travelled a much longer distance... Yes, than that's any true. of these others, and would have gone through more swing, extreme swings of temperature, etc., etc. So whatever we say now might not necessarily be a fair reflection on this beer. No, due but... to that, because they <clears throat> don't ship this beer directly into this country. They ship no. it to Europe, and yes, then exactly, yeah. our suppliers in the UK have to buy it from European suppliers. Yeah, which means that it might. Oh, my! I wonder actually if a post-Brexit world might offer this beer in a bit more readiness. To be found out, I guess. Um, I mean, you know, you could be in Italy and Belgium and an island and get American beer fresher, quicker than you can in the UK for a very yeah. long time anyway. Yeah. So I imagine that's probably only actually going to get worse. But we will soon find out. Maybe it will drive drive the market to be even more inspirationally creative. So uh, we're going to have a little taster of this. So this Spencer Trappersdale is 6.5%. Yeah. Um, I'll just quickly interrupt you for a second. Um, what we've also sort of done with this little lineup is highlight a few of the styles. Now, this one falls, again, like Orval, well out of any style bracket, but it effectively draws inspiration from the Patis beer, the Monk's beer, and it is sort of serves that purpose to their range. And if you think about American ABV of beers, they tend to start a little higher anyway. So I kind of, you know, bloody-mindedly crowbarred that in. Just like, that's, that's, that's a passage beer, that's, a, that's fine. But um, obviously, again, let's take that Belgian approach and say we don't need to nail on what style it is. So with that in mind, yeah. let's not think about what it could be or should be to our preconceptions. Oh, so that's got a nice hopper over, isn't it? Yeah, it does. It's quite... Um, sort of slightly earthy herbal. and a bit herbal. Yeah. But again, smells like it is, you know, a sort of true American grown and in in it's got that restraint, a little bit of, you know, citrus quality to it. And like a kind of almost pine, but like just yeah. like a really... Just a touch though, not like, you know, your, your big numbers, your, oh, you know, yeah. your Chinooks and your Sea Hops and your Simcoes and all of the new massive fruit forward ones that you're getting. So it's it's like an old school 
new school, if you know what I mean. <laughs> but what I what I like about that already, and I think we'll we'll get into this a little bit with the um, Tint Meadow as well, yep. is the fact that we're not supposed to see these beers as having to fit into the brackets that have been established, well, question mark, have been established by the Belgian uh, Trappist beers. Agreed, yeah, They yeah. are supposed to have their own characteristics and really draw from their own history and culture. I agree, and I think that's a really significant thing. I mean, they don't have to, but I think you should. You might as well highlight yeah. the, you know, the qualities of the things that grow nearest to you. So, yeah, we talked about that slightly... Spicy, woody, mm. it's a slightly citrusy aroma. But underneath it, it smells like it's a very nice, just a hint of that slightly sweetened uh, base malt. You know, it's mm. almost like Munich malt quality. Um, and I'm, I'm assuming that's probably just because it is a plain, pale base malt, but then with a little caramel malt in there. And it's interesting you say that because actually in, once you're sipping at it and the flavour you've got like a, a malted loaf it's true isn't it because you say like malted loaf you know we talk a lot about breadiness and baked mm. breads and you know this that and the other and toast but this is more loaf like it is it's like a malt loaf yeah. to some degree but with all those sort of like raisiny notes brought right down mm. to this tiny little tiny little uh, highlight in it and it's like it that zestiness that I suppose must come from the hops as well, those American hops, it really brings it back up again and freshens it and, and stops it from being too heavy. It's very bright, isn't it? Yeah, it's very bright. But really, it just zips off the palate, but it leaves just a little touch of sweetness just to bring you back in. Whereas we talked about the La Trappe Quad, which dries up to bring you back in because uh, that's big and boozy and you want, you, if it was too sticky and sweet, you wouldn't want another big mouthful. What's this? It's like the opposite. Little sweetness and little dry bitterness in the finish. Absolutely, it's very nice, isn't yeah, it? Yes, a very nice, very fresh. Is it, and, and is it as refreshing. good as as good as you remember having at the previous occasion? Oh uh, well, I uh, <laughs> I don't remember it at all. I think my palate must have been completely dead last time I tried it because I I can't remember it tasting like this. Mm. Um, well, I think that's good. So I'm I'm happy. I'm impressed. I I would really love to try that fresher. You so, know? Well, same here. But I mean, I also that's what it's like. Maybe five six months after it was brewed. Obviously, we're losing probably some of the true clean brightness of it and some of the hop character, hop aroma. But again, the yeast aroma, which we haven't talked about, whereas it's normally quite to the fore on a lot of the Belgian uh, Belgian and Dutch ones in mm. particular, is quite muted, but not totally muted. It still has a nice, ever so slightly banana clove in the background, which really complements that sort of spicy herbal Hop aromas. It's a very, it's a very well balanced beer. I'm very impressed with that. But again, flashing back to the whole thing, it is simplistic. It has. Mm. It's not going. Whoa! Look at me. I'm, yeah, it's know. not shouting about no. it. It's not. And I mean, maybe it's just because we've followed on from a quad. Yeah. But it really feels very understated, and yeah, yeah. just a really straightforward, almost sessionable. Yeah, yeah. Sort of. But, Pale that, ale. but that's also it, isn't it? The La Trappe Quad isn't a massive shouty beer, just because it's big and boozy. Mm. But it's not going, look at all these big notes that I've got. Again, bringing it back, back to the simplicity yeah. of the Cistercians. Yeah, very beautiful. Right, so what are you going to tell me about Right, it? so I'm going to tell you um, what I have written on my piece of paper. <laughs> <laughs> transparency. Um, transparency right here. We've come prepared with notes. So this abbey and this monastic community is a little 
different from our European set. Mm-hmm. In that this community have moved multiple times. So whereas all the other ones, they may have they they may have built new monasteries, but they were generally staying on the same site. Yeah, and then moving uh, portion on from the mother abbey, and then it's exactly a new one. This one they've moved. They've jumped from... Physically moved site. Moved site multiple times. So when I talk about the history of this, we're going to see that we don't really have a home for this. Interesting. So it's more of a nomadic existence. Not not out of a wish to be nomadic, but purely through circumstances beyond their control, as we will get into. Um, So the community was established in 1811... Um, and they've been brewing since 1857. Yeah. Now, initially, so 1811, you mentioned up up top uh, in your timeline yes. that this was a significant period because after the French Revolution, um, there was a, a wish to kind of move away and uh, the, well, particularly as religion was being oppressed yep. within yeah, the yeah, new yeah, yeah. republic. Um, I know we were all looking to get to the to the new promised land, weren't they? Exactly. Was... So a group of monks was sent from Europe to North America in the hopes of establishing a Trappist monastery mm-hmm. over there. Um, so they eventually managed to settle in Nova Scotia in Canada. In Canada. Um, so that is where the story of Spencer starts. Okay. Um, so we're in Canada. What What's going on? Why are we there? It's very strange. Um, so... They tried very hard to establish community there, but eventually in 1857, they had to send back to Europe for reinforcements from St. Sixtus. So ah. the, those uh, quality uh, monks from uh, who may bring us West Vlertren, um, they w- sent over 11 monks to help get this monastery going. Um, so they established the monastery of Petit, level and they began brewing beer for their own table uh-huh. so it so this is why i say that it has been brewing since 1857 yeah purely for the monastery itself yes yeah and and we've said before that is you know, there's a we talk about the uh, continuity and longevity and some of them a lot of them have been brewing for long periods of time interrupted but nearly always exclusively for themselves. So they they remained there in Nova Scotia for a little while. And so we come to 1900. There were fires in 1892 and 95 at their Bloody Nova Scotia hell. site. Um, so this community had to move. So in 1900, they moved to uh, Cumberland, Rhode Island right. and established a new monastery there. So they were there for another 50 years. So we, we kind of are having these jumps in time where they're relatively settled, but they don't seem to have quite really found the footing and found the support that they needed. So we get to 1950 and there's another fire um, in their new site um, in Rhode Island. Bloody um, hell, it's... Well, I say new, by that point it's 50 years old, but they're... they're <laughs> Brother Joe and his pipe smoking now. <laughs> One might call them cursed, but you wouldn't really want to suggest <laughs> no, that they were. you certainly wouldn't want to suggest um, <laughs> So there was a fire on the Feast of St. Benedict. Um, wow. So that is March the 21st, so the anniversary is coming up. Uh, well, the Feast Day of St. Benedict is coming up. Someone had done a dodgy wiring job, haven't they? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, it forced the community of 140 by this point 
Bloody so they'd hell. really, they'd grown, they had grown. So they'd grown enormously and they had to move around a lot. And yeah. then they had, were forced to move again, I'm assuming. Yeah, so the community of 140 moved to their now current home of Spencer in Massachusetts. Right, so, so they, recently... they were established in 1950 in Spencer, Massachusetts. Yes, yeah, so they'd already acquired this site, I suppose maybe to send some of the monks from the monastery over there to, yeah. to get going with a new site. But um, then they all had to go uh, because the, <laughs> the, the monastery was burned. Um, so four years later, they began in 1954, they began making preserves from the herbs and fruits in their garden. So this was um, the first one they made was a mint jelly. Uh, which, I love a mint oh, jelly. Oh, I love Ooh, mint jelly yeah. too. So good. Go really nicely with this as well. Oh, it would go nicely with this. Mm. Right. That like herbal. Oh, this would go well with lamb. I, I mean, just, you I'm, don't really know. I was how. just thinking that. I was thinking <laughs> it probably means it's going to go well with lamb. Yeah. But how do I know? Yes, Mr. Vegetarian wouldn't understand. Mr. Vegetables. So they've been making those uh, jams and jellies ever since. Um, and they <laughs> continue to make them to this day. They now have 30 jams and jellies in their. Uh, for sale um so they, that's they a, atp yes they are that's <laughs> one of, that's a trappist product as well so it's yeah still continues to this day i'd love to get hold of some of that that'd be lovely it, it would be amazing maybe one day we'll take a pilgrimage there mm, it would be great i'd i would really like you know that part of america particularly appeals to me yeah yeah um and so we're gonna jump right forward there's really not a great deal to say about them because other than the moving around, um, they've been relatively quiet. So we jump straight forward to 2013, and on December the 10th, the Abbey beer is certified Trappist. Uh-huh. Uh, 2013. So 2013. Um, so, of course, they had already been brewing throughout this time, but, yeah, it, uh, it was a certified Trappist ale in 2013. Mm. Um, they now, in 2021 have quite a range of beer which is unusual i think because we obviously we know like we have uh trappist breweries in europe which um produce maybe four beers uh, and then a christmas beer um but a lot of them have paired back to that haven't they exactly but generally they have like probably averages out like three yeah. Or two or three. Exactly. And it's only the likes of, again, like La Trappe that have an extensive range, mm. who we're also saying were one of the first to be exporting to the US market. So I don't know if that has an, an effect on, 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 you know, these guys. But maybe also it's like we can do this, this range of beers that, you know, the US has been a big beer, you know, modern craft beer consuming country and driven that forward. So I guess that probably has a direct effect. Whilst, you know, you're imagining that, oh, we've been brewing beers like this for a couple hundred years yes it's all very new and so it's like whoa yeah we could do an imperial stout yes so um so what have yeah speaking of what, so what have they been making the range includes so um their trappist range includes the trappist ale yep which we are drinking now yep um a holiday ale uh, yep. which is like a christmas beer and uh monk's reserve Ooh. um That's so sexy name, isn't it? those are the trappist range right then there is their craft range which uh, includes an imperial stout monks ipa which comes in cans um, premium premium (laughs) pills vienna lager and a trappist ipa 
which differs from the Monk IPA, um, but in the sense that it is only available in Europe. So, uh, so is it the same thing, but just I, marketed differently for the... Yes, I'm not sure, because that one's sold in bottles, and it says only available in Europe, but it, mm. I couldn't find any information about why it's only available in Europe and whether that means that they're actually um, contract brewing that in Europe. Because I can't really see Possibly, why it would only be that would that in then Europe. I mean have you say that's the Trappist range and that's craft range. Has the craft range still got the authentic Trappist product products ah, seal? I'm not hundred percent sure. Because again that would then state that, that Trappist IPA with the name Trappist IPA on it couldn't be classed as Trappist. Yes. So I would imagine with it being called Trappist IPA, mm. it would still be Trappist. It would be really interesting to find yeah. out and I would love if anybody listening has that information, please let me know because I am really or if interested. You want to Google to know. the labels in a bit, but we'd rather hear from you. Yeah, well, because I was <laughs> looking at them on their website and they do give like a really structured breakdown of each one, like you know, what the malt bill is, hot bill, you know, flavor profile, and everything. But it doesn't really talk about you know why they're differentiated in such a way. Um, so we've done the craft range, there is also a fruit range, um, there's a peach saison and a grapefruit IPA. Ooh. Very uh, taste of the day. Absolutely. And so I just find it really interesting that they've... I, I mean, my instant feeling is that, you know, they've gone very American. They've not done yeah. anything by halves. They've just gone, if we're going to do this and if we're going to make this profitable, then we're just going to go for it. And we're going to make as many things as we can in the capacity that we have. But I also think that it makes a lot of sense to respond to the country you're in and therefore the market that's around absolutely. you. Absolutely. And, you know, if you think about tastes and the uh, and the marketability of certain products and the, and the saleability it makes a lot of sense to respond to that which is why moving neatly on to our next one which i know you've been quite wrapped up but that's going to highlight a very traditional british approach isn't it yes. i think to a degree <laughs> absolutely i mean that's everything i had to say about spencer um and that's all i've got to say about that i think that i would put it on one of on the list of places i would love to visit because I'm very interested in visiting that area of America mm. anyway. Um, and to also just see the way they do it. I mean, if you actually look on their website, and I, I recommend you do, because both the Spencer website and the um, Tim, uh, the Mount St. Bernard website for Tim Meadow, they have really lovely breakdowns of their history, which mm. also includes a full breakdown of monastic brewing history as well. Yeah, nice. um, and then they have further reading for you. Um, but they also give you really beautiful photos of the of the places. And I think one of the nice things about that part of America is that they really, you know, you get, that's where you get the historical buildings and the, yes, of course, the yeah. monastery itself looks like it's just been lifted up and plonked down from Europe. Well, from what I know, that has happened several occasions in the US. They have physically moved churches, yeah, abandoned churches, but also, you know, historically, bridges and things as well. Yes. So, <laughs> um, but it, but then there's also I saw a picture of what says on the outside is their brewery, and it's like the most modern, chic-looking, like yeah. very angular building. It's like it feels rather incongruous when you know that it's 
it's associated with this really like traditional looking monastery. Yeah, and I guess though that's probably more reflective again of the US market and you know the the way that it works, which is to make it it's a much more you know brewing is a sort of it's a food you know it's mm. a clinical sort of process and I think here because we've got old buildings we tend to cram things into them. Yeah. As you go, well, we could just make a purpose built nice, clean, tidy, warehouse style yeah. brewery. And, you know, it makes a lot of sense. And also, I think, for the sake of knowing that it will be a tourist attraction, yeah. if you can separate it as much as possible from the existing community and make sure that, you know, they can carry on with their daily prayers, their daily work. And, and they can then, have access to it, but it's still Trappist because it's within the... It's still within the... The boundaries of the Abbey. Absolutely. Which makes a lot of sense. You can come in and see this, but you can't see this bit over here, but you can come and see this. Yes. Yeah, well, it makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? So you better start buying me plane tickets. <laughs> <laughs> and then drug me, because I hate planes. Bit weird. Okay. <laughs> well, you know, Do you want me to, you want me to me drug up? you just as soon as I've bought train tickets? Like... Or plane tickets? Sorry, do you want me to drug you as soon as I bought plane tickets, or do you want me to wait until you're actually getting on the plane first? Um, yeah, <laughs> probably once I'm on the plane. I mean, if yeah. you started drugging me for the moment, I mean, we've got to get our vaccines first before we can leave the yeah, country. Yeah, I was going to say, it could be a bloody long while of you being drugged up <laughs> yeah, before I'm not, we go anywhere. Not on board with that. Um, so now moving on to our final beer of this episode, and mm. one of my personal favourites. Yes. I know that technically. It's probably not the best of all the Trappist products, but this one just really hits my palate in a way that I love. Here we are. It is Tint Meadow, produced at Mount St. Bernard in Leicestershire. Yeah. So um, I'm not sure if we've mentioned on the podcast before, but actually we are both from Nottingham. Uh, so we have both visited this place a couple of times yeah, before before yeah. there was a brewery there, you know, yeah. but also having been raised Catholic, both of us, it was uh, a bit of a destination. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but it's a beautiful place to visit. Destination um, fun times. Destination fun times. Um, <laughs> but it is a beautiful, be- first of all, it's a beautiful part of the world. But, yeah. you know, in, in that area of Leicestershire, Nottinghamshire, um, it is wonderful, historic old Charmwood Forest. Um, and the rock up there is very ancient you feel Mm. you feel at one with the earth so let's crack into it the abbey of mount st bernard was founded in 1835 on land provided by ambrose de liesel that's a great name isn't it It is a great name he's he's actually he changed his name to de liesel i forgot to write down what his uh, original name was but it it was very British sounding <laughs> the original name um, could even be pronounced as Lyle I guess oh I suppose it might be it's like the word Isle Lyle in front of it oh you're right it's probably Ambrose, Ambrose to Lyle. to Lyle this is why you go on the Google this is why you go on Google first and double check your pronunciations <laughs> I'm going to call him Ambrose de Liesel. Yeah, I'm probably I'm wrong stick, I'm going to stick with Ambrose de Lyle. So um, he owned an estate and uh, he was eager to help with the reintroduction of monastic life into the UK. Uh, So to give a little bit of background for people who might not be au fait with the history, um, in the 1500s, uh, under the reign of King Henry VIII, 
there was what is often referred to as the dissolution of the monasteries. It's more regularly called the repression of the monasteries or something along those lines. But yes, the dissolution of the monasteries. So after many years of having various repressive laws placed in to to bring them in line with mm-hmm. what uh, Henry VIII wanted from religion. Um, they were... They're... He didn't want for much, did he? No. <laughs> um, uh, and then there was very barbaric destruction of the monasteries where the monk, many monks were slaughtered mm. and local villagers were, uh, would uh, loot the abbeys. I mean, at the time, the Catholic Church was flaunting its wealth and the monastic life was not the same as it is today um, or certainly not the way it was intended to be people were going and joining monasteries in order to have what they basically considered to be a bit of a cushy life you know their food was paid for and actually you know they certainly weren't keeping their vows of chastity and no. uh, I mean, plenty. I'm sure plenty of them were, but no, not all of them. Eh? Um, and um, there was, was it still the case. It was you know it was like the the eldest son would often become become a, a priest, and you know. Like no, the eldest son. And... The eldest son would inherit the estate. It used to be that the second, second eldest right. would join the church. Yes, there were often sort of people from rather wealthy families as well, bringing a certain amount of wealth. The, these monasteries were dripping in wealth yeah and so it became a point of contention for um the the lower classes that there were these people who existed in such high life and they were supposed to be religiously minded and they were living on you know nothing they were they were scrabbling around so anyway that's just to contextualize a little bit how after that after the dissolution of the monasteries monastic life was you know, really, there wasn't a great deal of um, religious life existing in, certainly not Catholic, um, for for hundreds of years afterwards. There were Catholics mm. underground Catholicism, um, yeah. but ah, yeah, it it took hundreds of years for it to come back uh, yeah. to being acceptable to be openly Catholic again. Um, then, thanks to a group of monks who moved over from France during the revolution who'd been driven out they moved to cornwall and established um cistercian monastery in cornwall and from there that saw a sort of branching out back into the uk of more monastic establishments yeah unfortunately those french the french settlements were eventually moved out because they were seen as a threat there was a lot of disillusionment within the the cornish in the, particularly in cornwall where there was such intense poverty yeah. but in general across the country people couldn't understand and why they that, weren't rising up against the and king there's still against, tension with france at that point as well uh, exactly yeah. so the tension with france and seeing these people as potential spies, they were forced yeah. out again. Yeah. But um, but within that, we did see this uh, sort of springing up again of a uh, wish for people to actually join monastic communities and for there to be new communities established. Mm-hmm. Anyway, back to the point. Um, it so, was good, though. I liked that. Yes. <laughs> I always love how much, you know, with such great eloquence that you can speak on a subject when you're passionate about it. Yes, and when I've had a few drinks. I've um, had a few ales. <laughs> uh, so, Ambro de Liesel. <laughs> uh, yeah, he, old Ambrose so de Liesel. He had this land. He was pro-introducing monastic life back into the country. And so, on Michaelmas Day, 
1835, Brother Augustine Higgs was given a cottage in Tint Meadow in Charnwood Forest and asked to build a new community of monks there. Um, so he brought on board six monks who helped to build the original monastery, which was erected in 1837. Now, jump forward a little bit in time. 1844, the 16th Earl of Shrewsbury, he took an interest in the efforts to reintroduce the monastic life to the UK, and he donated money to build an even more impressive and more permanent monastery on the site. So they hired an architect of the Gothic Revival, who was very famous, called yep. Augustus Welby Pugin. Pugin, thank you. So he offered his ser his services for free. And in 1844, the new monastery was opened on the site where it still stands today. And it's a really beautiful building. Yeah, and it's very reflective again, to keep driving the point home, of that notion of simplicity. And it fits into a landscape around it, that lovely sort of un very softly undulating landscape. Um... And then there's just this strength of the building there that fits in surprisingly well into the into the the meadows around it, and it is it's sort of at one with the with the uh, landscape, isn't it? It's, it's it's a beautiful place to be. Yeah, it really is. So the building had been built, the community were there, and what were they doing to raise money? Well, at this point, it wasn't necessarily brewing. Their initial income was raised through dairy farming, among other farming activities. In the early 21st century, it became clear that dairy farming was no longer viable to sustain the monks and the monastery, partly because the advances in modern agriculture across the country had also sort of made it easier for anybody to dairy farm and had the price of milk was very low because there were so many um, dairy farms in the UK anyway so for a monastery to be selling their beautiful milk and cheese it just wasn't viable anymore so they closed the farm in 2013 which is a real shame because I don't think I ever got to try their cheese and I would have quite liked that yeah, I'm a big nice, fan of Trappist cheese made very nice products yeah so where does the beer come into this well there is evidence that beer was being brewed on the site of the abbey in the 19th century, but it was only consumed by the monks and the guests who came to visit the guest house. So, unfortunately, that recipe was lost, but the records report that visitors enjoyed what they called the monks' table beer. Mm. So it was probably only ever going to be quite a low ABV beer. But in 2017 and 2018, uh, to make up for the lost dairy farm... The monks moved the refectory and the kitchen and they made way for a very state-of-the-art brewery. Now, the funds for this brewery were donated by a man who had met one of the monks on a boat to New Zealand, wasn't it? I think it was, yeah. It was a long time before. It was before, obviously, he became a monk, wasn't it? Or was it when he had already I think he was already a monk. Um, yeah. So this this man had befriended him on a journey... And um, they became very good friends. They kept in touch. I think the man was already religious. Um, yeah, but I don't think he was exceptionally so, though. I don't no. think he's particularly... You know, you'd say, you know, if you met him in the street, you wouldn't think he was a very particularly religious man. But obviously, something about this monk or monk-to-be, I can't remember, 
had this enormous impact on him and his life, didn't it? Yes. And so um, he found himself with money that he wanted to put into a good mm. cause. And what better cause than to uh, yeah. help to uh, invest in a brewery? Really beautiful state-of-the-art kit. But yeah, um, they've done a beautiful beautiful job. And when I say that, I don't just mean aesthetically, because it looks nice, If you're, especially if you're a brewer and you're into sort of uh, beer porn. Um, I don't mean literally beer porn, but, you know, lovely shiny tanks, etc., etc. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, they've done a great job of putting very good quality kit together that is also appropriate to what they're doing and it feels very it feels very right yeah um so unfortunately i cannot remember the name of that man but we watched a wonderful documentary which i would highly recommend to anyone who is interested in not only the kind of brewing side of monasteries but it, it gives you a really beautiful insight, whether you're religious or not, yeah. into the daily lives of the monks. Yeah, and into humanity. It's mm. very human. It's very real, and it, you know, it very much takes on the subjects of of life and death and our existence in our surroundings and how we affect it. I think it was a very beautiful documentary. For for no matter who you are and what your beliefs or no beliefs are, it's a beautiful documentary. It's very well shot, very well put together, and it's very. It's very effective, isn't it? It's very striking. Yes. Uh, so that documentary is called Outside the City. Yeah. Um, and we watched it on Amazon. I but think it's yeah available on Amazon, probably a couple of other platforms as well. But I think predominantly it's that. And then I think you're probably able to buy, you know, buy the download yeah. or buy the DVD. But I, I would really recommend it. It's it's really beautiful. It's very heartbreaking as well, watching the kind of slow... Because at the moment, they really don't have very... No. Uh, like the, we talk, talked about it with lots of them. They're ageing communities. They're not bringing a lot of young people. And this one, you do we, see a young man We talked man about that at length in Eichel, in the yeah. uh, blog post we did. Yeah, um, absolutely. But, but the other thing on top of that sort of sadness of the ageing community and the deaths that are obviously inherent with that is... Um, is the the wry humour, you know? There's the, mm. a very honest approach and ref, you know very reflective, but amused, you know, like this is this is our lives, and it is, it is very beautiful, isn't it? You know, it's that that understanding of who you are and your existence in the world it doesn't have to just pertain to people who have chosen a religious life. Mm. It can be very informative of a, a, a beautiful approach to your own life. So, Tint Meadow beer was released in 2018 named after the meadow where the abbey was founded mm-hmm. um i tried to look up the meaning uh, the etymology of the word tint um so as far as i could find it derives from middle english and it means lost mm. or um and it the, the meaning lost in multiple different ways it can mean to have lost an item to have lost um a person to have lost your religion, mm. um, to have lost God. And I think it was really interesting that, you know, it, it could be applied in so many different ways and certainly so many different spellings. Unfortunately, I couldn't find the spelling which is used on the bottle. Um, so there's no guarantees that that's So there's no the... guarantee that that is the etymology of the word, but that I, I did my best. And the other thing is we forget when we talk about these things is that, you know, Britain up until not that long ago had lots of local... Uh, dialects and iterations mm. of the the old English language and you know English language as it is now, so it could be any number of things. Absolutely, it could just mean green. It could just. Also, we don't know. I'm just I'm just spitballing now. Yes. <laughs> um, I mean, we could mention 
the um, branding on all of these bottles. Yeah. Um, I think... Well, one thing, I'm just going to jump in there. Yeah. One thing that we noticed when we lined all six beers up together yes, is a sort of tidy, stripped-back uniformity. Yeah. It was almost like the beige collection. Like, <laughs> there's a range... I mean, that is partially because we of the beers we chose. You know, if we'd chucked in West Muller Double, that would have thrown everything right out. But there was a sort of, you know, silvers and whites and creams and um, and beige. And, you know, it sort of feels very pared back again. Now, I know that is the case overall. They're still very, you know, very uh, low-key. But I think in particular highlighting probably for ourselves because we're, you know, we have that sort of artistic bent that we're like, oh, look at that one. That looks lovely, doesn't it? And for me, the Orval and I think the Tint Meadow just look stunning. Absolutely. Um, I did discover as well, if you, um, again, go on the websites for these um, monasteries because there's, they have so much history on there, so much of their own background. But they were talking about the fact that the uh, writing, which is used on the front of the label for Tint Meadow, um, is inspired by uh, traditional writing from the 1800s, a traditional form of calligraphy, which was... Um, sort of pioneered by a member of their community um mm. and so they brought it back out of the archives basically and tried to recreate it but then you also get um on their glass you've got the beautiful window yeah. which it is a depiction of the window one of the windows in the abbey yeah, um, yeah. i mean it's what it's it's all very beautifully presented isn't it because even then it's the rocky outcrops of, yes um, char- char- cut wood. into the bottom of the label as well just yeah. to add that little very um, very beautifully done in fact actually in the documentary as well they they show the point which they're developing the the uh, the brand to go with it and it is um oh, it's very yeah. interesting to see but yeah so we had a, haven't actually talked about this beer i know i charged ahead with the history you went so fast out of the traps you're like i want to talk about this beer i want to talk about history for fuck's sake yeah. Exactly. <laughs> no, that was it. Not about the beer. You wanted to. I'm, I'm going. I don't want to talk about the beer. Let's talk well, about it's because I'd already had two beers. I was fine. I didn't yeah, need yeah, to. You didn't need to talk anymore about beer. But um, this let's one. Talk about the beer. Now, as I said before, with the Spencer, I think what you what you get straight away from this beer is a real nod to the traditions yeah. of the country it comes from. Now, I think the monks that were sort of researching the brewing process and learning what they could, they had visited a few other monasteries that are using, uh, that are um, brewing. And I think it was you, Floz, that were telling me, was telling me that each one said, do not try to make a Belgian yeah, beer. Yeah, I, th- I think, yeah. Try to make a British version. Mm. And, and if, for some people, that's that's going to be to them. It's like, well, you know, it's not it's not what I think it is. It's because people have this association. Trappist means Belgian, mm. um, which let's dispel that. You know, I think that's a huge one that people have in their heads. And to make a beer in a an Abbey style does not mean it has to be smelling like bananas and bubble gum yeah. and fit into that very sort of Belgian centric bracket. This is great, like the Spencer was great, for just almost taking the sense of terroir mm. to making the beer. You're saying, this is very much us and our history. I mean, to me, it's it's like a proper ESB with a richer fruit and a, a more 
distinctive yeast characteristic. Yeah. I, mean, I like that. And I think it's also got nods towards old styles that have sort of died out as well. You know, like your old ales, not that that's fully died out, but it really has. Um, and, you know, beers like the old Burton Dark yes. Ales and stuff like that. So it, it's it's taken it's taken a few sort of like little things and put them together is how I feel about it. Mm. Um, but then that, it touches on the double, I'd say. It's yeah. like it's trying to touch and reach that double quality while also taking on really British characteristics of like yeah, yeah. you know like almost a nuttiness in the malt and 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 a fruitiness and, and yeah. just a like light a red, kind of like a red fruity yeah hedgerow from... is great yeah because it has that also slight ribbon quality isn't it as well you know where you've got like black you know blackberry uh, leaves and things like mm. that and it all just drops in there with this lovely lovely earthy but very sweet fruity aroma which is very sort of British in quality, you know. I think a lot of beers sort of fit into that bracket, and that's also it's interesting when you say you know it's got a double in to a degree. There's also it's like well the information passed back and forth, you know, is is the notion of you know Trappist beers of Belgium an entirely Belgian creation? Mm. And it's like when we talk about all these things, things go round and round, they go back and forth. And I think, you know, as much as it is a, a Belgian sort of phenomenon, it's probably also influenced by beers coming from Britain at the time and beers coming from Germany and then the Baltics. And it, so everything goes round and round in little circles and people take a little slice out of the pie each time and they add it to their own culture, which is why, again, it's wonderful to say they've take, taken an individualistic approach rather than say, let's do the same as everybody else is doing. Mm. And I think... To sort of round off uh, this uh, experience we've gone through with the Trappist this history, journey. this journey, I think that that's probably what sets some of these younger Trappist uh, beer producers apart from the old boys, from the stalwart historical yeah. ones, is this, uh, you know, each one has a real distinctive character. Um, but the young ones are kind of coming out with, you know, we're not just going to do what is expected. We're going to kind of throw in a little extra flair that comes mm. from a more modern, uh, like particularly with the Spencers, where they will, they're not just doing one, they're doing yeah, multiples. Yeah. And I, you know, I'm really hoping that um, Mount St. Bernard will produce another. Um, see, I mean that's interesting because I'm I would be I'm always happy to see somebody go. We only do one thing and we refine the hell out of it till it's the mm. best version of itself it possibly can be. But I wouldn't say no to another beer. But I'm always going to back somebody to do better if they focus their mind into one particular practice. Though, mm. so that's my personal opinion. That's mm. your personal opinion. Um, so how do you feel about the history of Trappist brewing? Yeah. I feel great about it. Yeah. I feel it's a delicious treat for I'm all glad the they're doing it. <laughs> I mean, something I would like to point out is that for all of the history that we've given you and for the history that you read about these things, I think there was no truer point than something I read online um, that really to understand what the, the Trappist brewers that we're talking about are is they're innovators. Because to think that there are all these, you know, multiple hundreds of years old, you know, inherited centuries worth of brewing knowledge, that that's as may be. But most of these beers realistically exist in the last 150 to... to that's, but it's yeah. probably that, about 150 yeah. years. 
So they're really quite new, and a lot of them have probably even really become the beers they have since the 50s and 60s. So that is really quite new. You know? And I think it was um, the article that I read, which was on the St. Mars of the Desert blog post, which I really agreed with because it rang true with my feelings about the, uh, you know, what, you know, the culture of Trappist brewing, is that to go with that, is that you think Sierra Nevada and Anchor, you know, Anchor Steam and when these guys popped up. Basically, a lot of these, these beers that you're drinking now and, you know, in your head have this, this notion that they're several hundred years old. Mm. They're just as old as those, some of them. Yeah. You know, the recipes are relatively just, new. To contextualise it like that is so unusual, it's so odd. It just yeah. jars straight against what you expect. And but... so it is to say, look, there's this heritage and this reason they've refined to a point and they've changed and developed and... And really, because again, as we've said in the past, these were the centres of great knowledge. The monastic communities, the church at large, was the one spurring on scientific knowledge and mathematical and, you know, the whole shebang. They were really pushing these things because they had that knowledge. So to apply that to brewing science, they were ahead of the game with that. And so they've often been an innovator all the way along. Mm. And we now look at that point where you've got breweries that are popping open for these more sort of, you know, well, they are new new Trappist editions, and they're doing great things. And it's lovely to see, whether you're religious or not, what they're doing is, is beautiful things, often in beautiful places, and for the benefit of others. And I'll tell you what, I'm benefiting massively. Yeah, right I think we both are right We're gonna now. We're going to have a very calm night. A very calm night. <laughs> so uh, do read our blog posts on the Eichel Brewery, which are no longer considered Trappist, because I think we've, uh, you know, there were some interesting points of history, and yeah. that links you also onto some other interesting articles that you can read. We've got a lot of book recommendations as well, yeah. but I think that we'll pop those onto the ground. We will, and actually um, we'll... We'll follow up on our promises on this occasion. We will actually make sure that happens. Yes, I know. I'm, That's I'm my sorry. fault. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yes, thank you so much for listening to both parts of this uh, epic journey. Next time we will come at you with some very quick halves. Yeah. With, uh, you know, just quick beer reviews. And Absolutely. also I've got a couple of uh, sort of more uh, light-hearted ruminations on the horizon. So, uh, Absolutely. So sit over yourself down. And don't fall into the la trap. Oh, no. We did so well. <laughs> we were doing so well and you ruined it. Oh, the business. <laughs> oh, no. Okay, oh. we've got to stop before he All carries right. on. Thank you for listening to Time at the Bar. Get out. Oh, I missed it again. Okay. Thank you for listening to Time at the Bar. If you have any beer recommendations... Uh, suggestions for episodes or you just fancy getting in touch then please email us at tatbpod at gmail.com if you use social media then please follow us on twitter at time at the bar pod or instagram at time at the bar pod thanks again for listening